So the series that we are in right now is is the book of Acts. And as I said, we're not going to do verse by verse by verse, but we are going to do the major touch points of this book to find out what the early church did as a result of the ministry of Christ. The backdrop for this passage for us this morning, looking back to last week, is, is that the Spirit was promised by Christ. He told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from the Spirit, that they were to wait. And then Pentecost arrives. That's how chapter 2 begins. As promised, it was about a week after Jesus told them to, to wait. He ascended and then about a week passed and then the Spirit came. And, and that's where we find ourselves. That, I mean, this passage is, is monumental for church history. It's absolutely uh, earth-shaking and groundbreaking in terms of God's work in the world. And it applies to and is critical to us in ministry. And so you can imagine, imagine a little bit of my fear in preaching it, thinking, God, I, I hope that what, the work that you are doing does not solely depend on what I say. And I, and I trust and I know that it doesn't because he will attest in your hearts things beyond which I could ever understand. Uh, but nonetheless, I have a, a great sense of duty and and, uh, and, and respect, I guess, and some fear in dealing with this. And so I am praying that the, the life of these words comes off the page to you and for us as a congregation. I think one of my jobs is not just to preach the Bible, but to figure out which parts of the Bible need to be preached. Um, that is part of the job. I mean, it's a big book. We can't do every subject or passage in it in probably the life of this entire church. We'll, we'll see. But there has to be some discernment as to what is important for us right now. And as a young church, I think it's important for us first to have seen the ministry of Christ. He is the centerpiece and the crown jewel of our faith. But then also to see, well, after he left, what does ministry look like? What does the life of the church look like? What are we supposed to be doing? So at Evergreen Chapel, we're, we're trying to connect the life and the person and the work of Jesus with the ongoing ministry and work of the church. How are those two things connected? And what should be our directives, our priorities, our doctrines, our practices, and our habits in light of those realities? And so that's sort of my rationale, my thinking about why we're going through the book of Acts. And obviously chapter 2, if you're looking at doing the touch points of the book of Acts, chapter 2 is right there. You, you cannot step around this and make sense of church history, you cannot make sense of the apostles' boldness, you cannot make sense of evangelism, you cannot make sense of the revolution that took place culturally unless you understand chapter 2. So none of what we do or think or say or believe makes any sense unless chapter 2 takes place. And in fact, if chapter 2 had never taken place, then we are still in the Old Covenant. We just sang that, that O come Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. Did God keep his promise to ransom captive Israel? Acts chapter 2 answers that question for us. So our text really falls into three categories. Number one, the Spirit empowers the apostles, empowers them and emboldens them. Number two, we see that God had always planned this from the beginning. This is not a new plan for God. And our third piece is that the result of this is the birth of of the church, the birth of the church, the reality in which we now stand. So it's the emboldening of the apostles and the empowerment of them. 
It's the longevity and consistency of God's plan. And then it's the result of that plan, which is the birth of this new community that we, and which God has called the church. So the setting here is the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, The day, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. As God had command, as Jesus had commanded them, right? They were they were where they were supposed to be, and it says that this, there came a rushing sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues and fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the setting. It's the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. We may think, and, and I have been, had to be corrected in this in my own mind. Pentecost is not the day, is not a name given to the day that the Holy Spirit fell. When we think of the quote-unquote Pentecostal church, which we say because there might be a heavier emphasis on the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in a Pentecostal church. And we think Pentecost is like it's the Spirit day. And it's true. But one thing that I think we miss, especially when we don't study carefully, is that Pentecost is actually an Old Testament feast that the Jews observed for hundreds of years. It's a specific day uh, that the Jews observed a festival. The festival that they celebrated called Pentecost was the celebration and the offering to God of the first fruits of the late harvest. In, in other words, the first of the crop of the late harvest, the Jews would, would gather and offer to God in thanksgiving as a recognition that he would bless the remainder of that harvest. In other words, thank you, God, for this evidence that you will provide for us, that you will bring in a harvest. The, the festival, the Feast of Pentecost, occurred 50 days over Passover, 50 days over the Passover meal, which was Thursday, um, in what, the Thursday that Christ was betrayed, if you remember. And so 50 days after, this is not long after Jesus had been crucified and, and raised from the dead. We learn in Acts chapter 1 that for 40 days after he was raised from the dead, he appeared teaching the disciples about the kingdom. And then it tells, and then it says that he told them to wait until the Spirit came. And so by then we're about, depending on how you look at the calendar of Passover, we're about eight or nine days away from the day of Pentecost when Jesus goes into heaven. So it's about a week, maybe a little bit longer. But Pentecost comes from the Greek um, root pente, which means 50. So it's a very specific time. It's a very specific event in the Jewish calendar. This is not something Christians in retrospect said, remember the spirit coming? That was so Pentecostal, man. That was like, let's call that the day of Pentecost. It wasn't like that. Meaning, or I'll say in other words, that God did not reward them for their sufficient waiting. And, and this is a doctrine, I feel like an interpretation that I feel the need to correct uh, because it's a mistaken interpretation to take this passage to have all of God's people sitting around and just kind of forcing God's hand to do something sensational or spectacular because we've sat around waiting long enough. We read this passage and we say, look, the disciples just waited and waited and waited and then boom, God blessed them. Well, that totally misses the careful calculation that God had made to send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In fact, Christ himself, I think, chose this day. Not that God and Christ are divided, but Jesus said, I will send my Spirit. Jesus was adapting the Old Testament feast 
to celebrate God's blessing. He adapted that and chose that as the vehicle and as the moment where he would send his spirit, the first fruits of the late harvest. Later in this passage, we see 3,000 souls converted, the first fruits of the late harvest. We also need to recognize that this is, this is what Jesus had taught them. This was uh, totally independent of their obedience or disobedience. I'm glad that they chose to sit around and wait, uh, namely because they had, no sp- they had no indwelling of the Spirit. And as we said last week, without the Spirit, man's quote-unquote ministry just becomes a world religion. But in the Holy Spirit, man's ministry for God becomes a revolution. It becomes spiritual renewal. The difference between religion and renewal is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, and this is an important, remember that the book of Acts was written by Luke, who wrote another book by his own name. And I want you to hear this from Luke 24, 45. You can see the continuity between his books. I'll start in verse 44. Jesus says to his disciples, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Oh, interesting. Didn't we hear Karen just read about the Psalms? Didn't we quote the Psalms extensively just in this previous passage? Everything written even in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning, starting from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Guess what? You are witnesses to these realities, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What's the promise of the Father upon you? Old Testament said it. I will pour out my spirit. This is the promise of the Father. Jesus said, I will send you that promise. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Christ was anticipating this. He said, this is what's going to happen. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Forgiveness is going to take place. It will be proclaimed to the whole nation from Jerusalem. You guys are going to be the witnesses. But don't start until the Holy Spirit comes. So that's the context of what happens when when Pentecost comes. So what we need to recognize is that Pentecost was the fulfillment. It was the inauguration of the final redemption that God had promised through Christ. Redemption is the big story of the Bible. It's the one thing that God is doing throughout the whole of Scripture. He is redeeming. From, from From when his creation fell... In Genesis chapter 3, redemption becomes God's great story. Everything in the Bible, beginning to end, is redemption. It is the big story. And one of the things that comes out in the Old Testament as we read is that redemption will not just be for a specific ethnic group of people. Although people sometimes, I think, errantly think of the Old Testament as that way, as being God simply favoring the Jews for, for its own sake. Instead, we see, we see that reality that the Jews were entrusted with God's good things. They were entrusted with the law. They were entrusted um, with the ceremonies. They were entrusted with those things. And absolutely, that is God's favor. But we, what we also see in the Old Testament is that God promises his redemption to all nations. To all nations. So what happens? I mean, Jesus said it right there in, in 24. 
And then Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes. And what's the first thing the Spirit does? Divided tongues fell as, as if fire on top of and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave, gave utterance. And so tongues rested on each of the apostles. This is produced entirely by the sovereignty of God. The Spirit chose to manifest this work specifically upon the apostles. It was initiated by God. It was not uh, conjured up by the disciples' uh, wailings or devotion or any such thing. The Spirit fell sovereignly by God's choice and produced this work sovereignly of God's choice to speak one specific thing to His church. That he was inaugurating the final redemption that had been promised throughout all of history. That all nations would be blessed in the family of Abraham. Jesus said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, In you shall all nations be blessed. God never intended to keep his salvation narrowly and ethnically focused. He certainly used the Jewish nation, Israel, but he never intended it for it to be that narrow for all time. He spoke his first promise to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what is he doing with the tongues? What's this all about? What's the significance in the speaking of these other tongues? Oh, verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem in those days because of the feast, devout men from where? From every nation. Well, that's coincidental, isn't it? Not in God's mind. There's a feast going on. He knew Jerusalem would be crowded with men from every surrounding nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multi, at this sound of the rushing wind, everybody kind of gathered around. They came to see what was going on. And they were bewildered. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Men from every nation came to these uneducated men of Galilee, partially educated. And these men were multi-linguists at the snap of a finger. Suddenly, men from all these nations that Karen read for us, uh, Parthenians and Medes and Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, men from everywhere suddenly were hearing the works of God in their own language from the mouth of Galileans, fishermen. Suddenly, they were hearing the works of God in their own language. Before this, the works of God had only ever been spoken of in the language of God's people, which is Hebrew. The scriptures were all in Hebrew. Now, by that time, the scriptures had, had been translated to Greek, but it was, that was, it's limited to the language of, of, the, uh, of the priesthood. The, God's word, the, there was not multiple translations of the Old Testament. Okay, We didn't have a word on the street version of Leviticus. It was a narrowly focused reality that God's words and works had never been spoken of in common languages and accessible to everybody. And here he uses Pentecost with men from every nation to come and hear God's works in their own languages. And again, what's the significance of that? The theme of that is laid out in Luke 24 where Jesus says, forgiveness will be proclaimed to all nations and you shall be my witnesses. This was immediately fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The apostles began to witness to the nations about the mighty works of God. That's what's taking place here with these tongues. One other thing we need to recognize that God is doing and how it's connected to the Old Testament is, is thinking about the Tower of Babel. And I've said this before and you probably know this, but 
at Babel, when men was united in language, we have a, a people in rebellion from God, raising themselves up in pride against God to build a tower into the heavens. And God says, these, these people are prideful. They don't know their place. And so I'm going to divide their languages. I'm going to divide their languages. This is Genesis chapter 11. And he scatters them and the building project fails because they can't speak the same language anymore. He separates man on the basis of language. One chapter later, in Genesis chapter 12, God meets Abraham and says, In you shall every nation be blessed. The promise of reversing that curse began one chapter later in Genesis. And here at Pentecost, God keeps his promise. He is now once again using divided language to unite people of every tribe and every tongue under the name of God in Jesus Christ. So this is powerful symbolism that God is accomplishing his long-awaited promises and redemption, salvation to the whole world. Psalm 86 says, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All nations will come before you and glorify you. Think, if this promise had not been fulfilled by God, none of us would be sitting here. We would be... We would be lost in our own sin had God not fulfilled his promise to send salvation to every nation. We are, the, we are the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. We think of sending missionaries out as going to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. God's word came to us who didn't deserve it, who dwelled in darkness. God has kept his promise. So that's... Part one up to the end of verse 13. And, and these men were mocking. They heard it and they mocked. And, and what does it mean that they were mocking? I, I don't fully know, but I wonder in one sense that they were, these were men who feared God and were devout. And were they intimidated by this display? Were they so overwhelmed by its power that they simply wanted to explain it away? They were uncomfortable with the closeness of God at that point? I'm not entirely sure. But certainly, there's a, there's a conflict arising from the falling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's probably no coincidence to you or me. That a conflict arises needing explanation when the Holy Spirit falls. And then Peter stands up. Good old Peter. He's been restored by God, by Jesus in the, in the end of the book of John. He's been restored back to ministry to feed sheep. Peter stands up and he teaches. He's going to solve the controversy. And what he basically says, and this is my second point, is that God had always planned this. Verses 14 through 36. He stood with the 11, which is a great picture of um, church eldership in unity over doctrine. It's not like Peter stood up and the others were like, oh, what's he going to say? Uh-oh, Peter's going to run his mouth again or something like, we, gotta, you know, we better make sure. They stood up together. They were of one mind of the interpretation of this event. I love that picture. In a lot of churches, uh, you actually see a pulpit in the center and you see chairs on, this, on the platform. Those chairs are to be filled with by the elders standing behind the preacher to stand with the word to say, we are of one mind on this. We teach this in one accord together. It's not what, you know, secret Pastor Tim found in his prayer closet that week. There's an importance for the preacher to go and to study privately, but certainly there has to be a consensus, and, and I really believe that strongly about Evergreen Chapel, that we need um, eldership that is in, in, of one mind 
teaching the truth so that no matter what you are going through, even if you're not comfortable talking to me or some elder, there is, there is an elder in this church, and that's what we're working towards. There is an elder in this church that believes and teaches the same thing that you'll hear from the pulpit, giving you counsel. That is the signal and the sign of a unified church. It's beautiful. That's not really the point of what I'm saying here, but I think it's worthy of pointing out. But what we need to avoid here is the temptation to think that God has somehow radically altered his plan for redemption. We see, I think in our time, a lot of cliches that people try to use to discuss what is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think it's important that we understand it. It's important that we understand it. But often you'll hear things like, well, the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. Or the Old Testament is wrath. The New Te- Let's say the Old Testament is wrath. The New Testament is grace. The Old Testament is law. The New Testament is gospel. Those distinctions bear some resemblance to reality, but they, but they are unhelpful at large. The New Testament teaches us that God preached the gospel to Abraham. So we can't say the Old Testament is not gospel. And Jesus in the New Testament fulfills the law. So we can hardly say that the New Testament is not law. It's actually been fulfilled finally. So if anything, the New Testament is the fullness of the law. But it's the end of the law for those who are in Christ for righteousness. So we need to understand those things very carefully. So what is going on? What is happening here with Pentecost? And many people think like, this is God throwing the old out in the, the baby out with the bathwater. We're done with the Old Testament. Now let's move into John 3.16. That's a dangerous view of the Bible, and it's not the view of the apostles. I believe and I hope that as a church, we can say that we are an apostolic church, meaning that we hold to the teachings of the apostles. The apostles' doctrine, we see in uh, 2.42 that the early church gathered around the apostles' doctrine. And I pray that's the same uh, for us. But God has not radically altered his plan. I want to once again turn your attention to Luke chapter 2. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture, certainly my favorite, I think my favorite character, a guy named Simeon at the temple. Jesus is just a baby here. Luke 2.26 says this, and this is speaking about Simeon, a really old guy who was fearing God and waiting to see God's salvation. Just as we sang, redeeming Israel. When will Israel be freed? This is a guy named Simeon who was waiting for Israel's redemption. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple. This is Simeon. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him. This is kind of like Uncle Simeon grabs baby Jesus and he holds him close and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus is exactly what God has always promised to Israel. It's what he has promised to the whole world. Simeon died before Jesus ever spoke a word. Jesus did not alter God's plan. Simeon saw Christ and said, this is what has always been prepared and promised. There is nothing unusual about what God is doing except that he is fulfilling his promise. I suppose it's unusual because it's amazing. 
But this is God's promise. This is salvation to Israel and to the world. It's what God had always planned, and Peter knows this. So Peter stands up to clarify the controversy. This is amazing because as a preacher, Peter could have the temptation here to say, Oh, I'll tell you what's going to, I'll tell you this, guys. I know what this is about. So I was sitting with Jesus one day. Let me tell you this really cool story about Jesus. Him and I were just, just him and I together. We were just walking on the beach, just me and Jesus. And it was, I just want to share with you this amazing insight that I have because I'm such a deep dude with Jesus. Great temptation for Peter. Great temptation for a lot of preachers. Let me show you this. Like me and Jesus are so tight. And I just got this thing I want to share with you. Peter stands up to clarify the controversy. And instead of diving into his experience with Jesus as a person, the closeness that he had in Jesus' ministry, he stands up the very first opportunity for evangelism in the spirit-filled age. And he picks an Old Testament passage to preach from. Talk about like attractional church model fail 101. If you want to save people, you do not preach from the Old Testament. Wrong. Probably the greatest single day of conversions, at least recorded in Scripture, comes from a passage preached from the Old Testament. And what he stands, he gets up and he quotes from Joel chapter 2. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour. Which I find a little bit interesting, like, the drinking starts later. Like, it's, it's too early. You know, we have wine chilling on ice, but it's, we're not, it's breakfast. So I don't know what's going on there, but certainly wine itself was not the problem. It was the time of day. He says, these men are not drunk, but this is what Joel spoke about. Now remember, these are devout men. These are men who know the scriptures. These are men who come to Jerusalem to fulfill their obligation to God. These are men who fear God, who believe the stories of the patriarchs, all of God's mighty works. They're kind of on board. And so Peter pulls out Joel and he says, now you've heard of the book of Joel. You've heard this prophecy before. Let me tell you what it's actually about. The first act of church leadership under the guidance and filling of the Holy Spirit is to preach a sermon. Now you might say, well, you're a preacher. That's a convenient application, Tim. But whatever ministry I'm in in my entire life, whether it was when I was a youth pastor, when I was a camp counselor, church planter, the centrality of teaching and preaching God's word is indispensable. Is absolutely indispensable. And if you shot me dead for preaching, I would hope that the next person came up into this church would, would preach would preach, would preach, would preach. And I know that it goes beyond just hearing. We must do, but it begins with the mind. It begins with preaching. He preaches a sermon from the Old Testament. He turns God's people to God's living and active word for instruction in life. This is a real ministry problem. The spirit falls and they say, well, there's, these guys are drunk. Peter says, no, 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 I'm going to clear this up. I'm going to preach. I'm going to help you understand what God is doing in the world. What does Joel say? In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. That seems like that should have been kind of easy. Spirit falls. They should have been like, oh, I remember when Joel said the spirit would come. I mean, this is an explicit promise for the day of Pentecost in, in the book of Joel. Joel says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, 
In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now sometimes when we read the Old Testament we see prophecies like the sun shall be turned to darkness and, and blood and smoke and we think... Well, that hasn't happened yet. So that must be a future prophecy. Peter pulls this passage out to explain Pentecost. One of the great things that Israel anticipated was the great and awesome day of the Lord, where God would come and crush every enemy and bring full justice to the world. And that is somehow tied with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is why theologians have... We kind of hold this tension of saying, look, this is the promise of God fulfilled, but we obviously are not fully there yet. There, there is a span. There is a, there is a place for, for waiting and for anticipation of the fullness of that promise. It shall be in the last days, which means we have to take Joel in the context of Acts chapter 2 to say and to realize we are now in the last days, friends. And they began at Pentecost. Meaning... God established the final phase of his redemptive plan at Pentecost. And until his son comes back the second time, remember in Acts chapter 1, they were looking up in heaven and the angel said, don't look up there. You have work to do, but Jesus will come back in the same way that you saw him go. In other words, until Christ comes back, we are in the realities inaugurated in Acts chapter 2. We are now in the ministry of being those witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. Since that work is not done yet, then we continue on in the same mode, which is the, the, filling, the being filled with the Spirit and conducting ministry according to the will and power of Jesus Christ. I love this when he says all flesh. I'll pour my Spirit on all flesh. Again, what's the deal with this Spirit thing? I mean, Simeon, we saw in Luke chapter 2, was told by the Holy Spirit. He came into the temple in the Holy Spirit. It's like, did the Spirit already not come? Well, we know that God anointed certain men and gifted certain men with His Spirit in the Old Testament. Kings, judges, rulers, prophets were anointed of God's Holy Spirit. That's why David prayed, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. When he sinned, he thought, I am so unworthy of God's blessing of this anointing. Don't take it from me. And we as Christians, we read that and we say, oh, God will take his spirit. No, because David was not living in the last days. David was specially anointed by God to do something specific, to rule God's people, to judge rightly. Solomon received the spirit. That's how he was so wise. God anointed special, specific people for certain purposes. But in these last days, he pours out his spirit on all flesh. Isn't that incredible? The, the, the prophet John the Baptist, it was spoken of him that he was the greatest of all prophets who ever lived. But he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. There is an element in which God has set aside distinctions of rank or hierarchy or, or, or usefulness to God. He has set aside those distinctions in these last days and said, I will pour out my spirit on all who call on my name. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the identity of the church. We are not a spiritually vacant and desperate people. 
God has fully equipped us for this incredible, incredible ministry of reconciliation. He has equipped us. We need not wait any longer for this ministry. We need not wait any longer to take up this mantle and say, we will go, we will speak, we will love, we will act. Ephesians, chap- Ephesians chapter 4 says that when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men and women. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave gifts to all flesh, sons, daughters, male servants, female servants. Amazing that he fulfills this promise. There's a specific um, emphasis here on on signs and wonders. That's That's a part in this passage. I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below. Part of that is future, that when Christ comes back, there will be lightning flashing as from one end of the sky to the other. We will see cosmic signs. And he says, I will show wonders on the earth below. This is specifically present in the book of Acts because the apostles were going about preaching this radical message of reconciliation to God, which normally had only been done in the temple by the blood of goats and lambs, and yet they were going out and saying, you can be reconciled to God right now. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what did God do? He gave them the ability to work miracles just as Christ did in order to validate their message that God was truly with them. We need to recognize, we, need, we should be wary of overstating the role of miracles in the book of Acts. And we're going to get into that a lot more as the book goes on. But specifically, we're told that signs and wonders were being done by the hands of the apostles. It wasn't necessary for every of those 3,000 people to be doing some miracle back home. To go home and raise the dead or, or, or multiply bread or some incredible miracle, healing some leper. Those things had specific purposes. And, and the apostles were carrying out this ministry of, of, of the supernatural But it was only to attest to, to validate their message of spiritual, supernatural revival and redemption. And everyone shall be saved. This is incredible because it tells that there is now no liturgical or ceremonial or temporal or geographic barrier to full and complete salvation. It comes into the heart by confessing by calling out for help, a cry for help in the name of Christ, which means that on the street corner, in the mall, or at your office, somebody can be saved. Full salvation can come in a moment to those who cry out to Christ, which is why we kind of hold this tension of saying, well, I don't want to invite somebody to church because I don't want them to think that I'm trying to push a religion on them. And I agree with that. We can sit with them in their living room, you know, their crack pipe still smoking. And they can call out to Christ and be saved. And then they come to the family of God. But there is no barrier to that full salvation in these last days. Friends, this is why this is such good news to Israel, who had for generations known that you had to go to the temple. You had to bring your sacrifice. You had to see blood slaughtered on your behalf as a reminder of sin. All it did was remind you of your sin. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But the blood of Jesus can. So for Israel, this had to have been the best news ever. There's no longer a need for sacrifice. There's no longer a need for a stone temple. For we are the temple of God. This was good, good news to Israel. And it's even almost better news to Gentiles. 
who are not even looking for God. Think about us. Think about our town. There is no religious theme in Smith Falls, except maybe some vague Canadian notion of tolerance or something. These are not a people looking for God. They don't go to the temple saying, God, cleanse me of my sin. And we just go and we fill in the gaps for them. And we say, hey, devout men of Israel, you should know Jesus. These are people who do not even understand sin. They do not understand righteousness. They do not understand eternity. They do not understand a good God. And yet God would be so gracious as to have Christians in your town and in my town and in Smith Falls be available to witness to the truth of Christ. People who were not looking. While we were still enemies, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. That is our reality as Gentiles. We deserved eternal separation from God. And yet in these last days, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. See that again? Attested to you. Jesus did not just come in word. He came in power and deed so that everything that he said was attested to, it was proven by the mighty works that he was doing. When the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the waves were crashing, Jesus calmed the storm. What did they say? Surely this is the Son of God. It confirmed his identity. That's what the mighty works of Christ were for. So he was attested to them through mighty works. So guys, I'm telling you, this Holy Spirit thing is what was always coming from the book of Joel. And I want you to know this is God fulfilling his promise. But we cannot apply this sermon from Joel chapter 2 until we meet the man Jesus Christ. Israel cannot apply or receive or walk forward in this new covenant promise without the man Jesus Christ. Yes, this is the great fulfillment of God's promise to all nations. Absolutely. But you can not receive it until you meet the man, Jesus Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth was attested to you by signs as you yourselves know. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Other translations say, with the help of sinful men. That's the Romans. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes back to quoting the book of Psalms. Remember Jesus said, the Psalms need to be fulfilled. So Peter brings all of these assertions about the the new covenant and, and the last days that Joel speaks of. And he brings them and funnels them through the knowledge and framework of Christ Jesus. Remember the framework for this part of the sermon is, is, is that God had not abandoned his plan. This is not something radically new. Peter says, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God in verse 23, God did not react to Jesus' death. God ordained it. He planned it with Christ together for the redemption of mankind to put an end to their guilty consciences. God planned with Christ to bring this about. And I love this part because so then he brings Christ in. Jesus is is fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that through him all nations will be blessed. Peter then goes on to prove that Jesus is the central figure in all of the Old Testament, while not by name, but in nature and in reality. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you have not abandoned my soul to Hades. What did he say? He loosed the pains of death, for death could not hold him. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, Christ was not just a good rabbi who showed us a new way, who died and stayed dead. His bones did not undergo corruption. He was not abandoned to Hades, which is a euphemism for death. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You have made me known. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is spoken of by the one who knows he will die. It's spoken of first by David. But Peter says, David was a prophet. I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. It's a little bit of irony. It's a little bit of tongue in cheek here. I can say with confidence, my friends, that David is still dead. Unless you know something that I don't know, his tomb is still with us to this day. In other words, David, as great as he was for Israel, as great a leader as he was, he was a man after God's own heart. Our beloved King David is still dead. So was he wrong when he wrote that psalm saying you will not let your Holy One see corruption? No. He spoke as a prophet about one of his descendants. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was the son of David, the son of God. From David's own line came Jesus Christ who would fulfill that prophecy written of in the psalms. So if David is still dead, who could this be about? It's about David's son, Jesus Christ, who is alive and well and has ascended into heaven and it is his spirit which he has sent how can christ send his spirit if he's still dead it is him who's sending his spirit he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of christ that he was not abandoned to hades this is verse 31 nor did his flesh see corruption this jesus god raised up and of that we are all witnesses acts chapter 1 says that jesus appeared to many for 40 days 1 Corinthians tells us that he appeared to as many as 500. Of this, we are all witnesses. We know that David is still in the tomb, but all of us saw Jesus after he was killed. Meaning what? We know Christ has ascended. We know that this passage has to be about him. Brothers, if you believe, sisters, if you believe in the Old Testament, he's saying, you have to realize that Jesus is the central figure. He's not an anomaly. He's not a side project of God's. He is the whole purpose of the Old Testament. He is the driving force and the fulfillment and the culmination of every revelation God ever made to prophets, priests, and kings. It is all in Christ. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians that every promise finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Nothing that God has promised humanity is accessible apart from the name of Christ. Every promise finds its yes in Jesus. So does God love everybody? Yes, in Christ. Does God want to redeem everybody? Yes, in Christ. Is God going to remake the world? Yes, in Christ. Is God going to forgive people? Yes, in Christ. That is the, that is the truth to which we witness, friends. We live in a hyper-pluralistic and hyper-tolerant society where it is abhorrent to say there is any narrowness to truth. God has promised the world and eternity to humanity, but on the basis of a very narrow door.
So Jesus, this once despised and rejected teacher, is now Lord and King. He's ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Oh, 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 so does that mean Jesus received the promise of the Old Testament? Jesus received the promise of the covenant. Jesus received because of his obedience. He received God's blessing and he turns around to his church and says, I will give it to you. I will pour out my blessing on you that I received from the Father. So he is ruling and reigning. He's been exalted. Ephesians chapter 2 says that he's exalted over every name that is to be named in this age or the next. Christ is over all things. Nobody will trump his authority. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are hearing and seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Which Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15 saying, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will subject all things back to God. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. Friends, in other words, Christ is ruling and reigning now and there is a progressive sense to his rulership. There is a, there is a limited time. That the, the, this is not going to go on forever. Christ is not going to forever battle his enemies. He is subjecting all things to him until that last enemy is death and then we will live forever with him. Joel says these are the last days. There is a limited scope to this reality in which all things are not subjected to Christ, but they will be because he is ruling now and in the end, all things will be his and he will hand them over to God and God will be vindicated and, and, and reign as if he had meant to in Genesis chapter one. He made his creation to rule and reign over it and everything in between is God restoring us to that original relationship with him, but in Christ. So what happens? The church is born. This message is first directed at the house of Israel. It's a retrospective rebuke of their perception of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is directed at the house of Israel saying, this was your Messiah. This terrifies and convicts the listeners. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were just cut to the heart. They were just destroyed. This is what's happening. We crucified him by the hands of of Pilate and the Romans, what should we do? And so all of this miraculous tongues and all these, one, this wonderful sermon, they still are broken. All this does is expose their sin to themselves. This Acts chapter two, if anything, should help us turn away from the idea that if God would just blow through here with the Holy Spirit and just do something miraculous in Smith's Falls that everybody would be saved. It's not the way it works because this happened in the men. Even after hearing the teaching on it, they were still broken. They did not know what to do. So they ask, what should we do? The preaching of the word produces a sound impact. It's the, they were cut to the heart. Only God's word and his spirit can do that. You want to get through to somebody who's hard-hearted? Use the word and pray for God's spirit. You do not have the persuasive power, nor do I. Pray that God would cut men and women to the heart by his word. Do not be ashamed of sharing scripture with your lost friends, for it is the only light in their life. They were cut to the heart, and it also produces a response. What should we do? What should we do? And so Peter leads them straight to the source. He tells them, 
You need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to be baptized and repent right now. He doesn't say, well, you're devout men. You're good, God-fearing Jews. I think you're okay. He says, I know exactly what you need to do. You need to come to Christ and repent and turn away from your sin. Again, in this kind of attractional model era, we think, well, we can't preach sin. We can't tell people that they're sinful. We need to expose their sin to them so that they say, what do we do? Evangelism only becomes effective when you strip away every possibility from a person other than repentance. When you leave them so helpless. We're afraid to do that, aren't we? We're afraid to do that. We're afraid to show somebody how useless they are before God because we forget that we were that way. Until you come to the place where you are desperately crying out, what do I do? You cannot take hold of Christ. Our evangelism has to take on this, this more pointed and direct Approach. Now, I'm not saying it has to happen in your first conversation. I'm not saying you have to be a jerk. I'm just saying it has to come to that. Without the repentance of your sins, there is no salvation. The, the kingdom in the Old Testament always came with grand uh, economic, social, cultural, and geopolitical tones to it. Absolutely. The kingdom has great implications on culture and society. Absolutely. But before those realities come to pass, and this is why Jesus' death is so offensive to Israel. Because it says to them, you must be saved if you want my kingdom. You must be redeemed from the curse of sin in your own life. You cannot go hide in God's kingdom and, and hang on to your sin. Jesus says, when I am raised up, I will draw all men to myself. The way into the kingdom is through Christ and through his shed blood to forgive I think sometimes we can become distracted by the implications of the gospel, which are important and true. And we tend to minimize, we can minimize sometimes the, the grand miracle of personal salvation, the miracle of forgiveness in your own heart. It's easy for us to point out the sin in the economic system, right? Oh, the 1% and it's so unfair and it's unjust. And look at the oppression and the hierarchical. And the, we can look at injustices in the world, but what about injustices in our own heart? We need to turn the lens on ourselves. And when we evangelize, we need to turn the lens on people and say, is your heart right before God? We're afraid to do that because I think we underestimate the power that God can make it right. Isaiah 59.1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear those who call out on him. It was originally spoken to the nation Israel, but now it's having a profound personal implication for these specific men and women. 3,000. The late harvest is celebrated at Pentecost. The first fruits of the late harvest we are seeing. In the last days, the harvest will come in. It begins with these first fruits, these 3,000. One other thing. Pentecost also celebrated when the Jews believed that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai from God. Part of the, the new covenant promise was that God was going to write his law again. Not on tablets of stone, but on hearts. And so parallel, on the same day when God gave his original commands on tablets, he is now writing his law on hearts by the Spirit. 
He is fulfilling the promise of the new covenant. So what do these 3,000 people do? The church is born. As I, as I promised, I would get to this. The church is born. What do they do? They organize themselves around these four pillars. So they, they were saved, 3,000 of them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Four pillars of the church. They became the church that day. Remember, these are men and women from all around the region. But what happens when they got saved? They didn't want to go back. I'm not saying like you can't live where you live when you get saved, but essentially you need God's people now. They didn't go back and say, okay, well, like, you know, text me, uh, you know, like updates for this whole Christianity thing. Like put me on your newsletter. They stayed and they devoted themselves to teaching. They said, how are we going to live? How do we organize ourselves as this new community? Jeremiah 31, 34, the new covenant. God says, no longer shall each of you say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest. That doesn't mean evangelism stops in the new covenant. It means that there is now a community of God together who works for that reality. There's not a whole lot of evangelism between us. We hope that the lost come to our services here at Evergreen, but we don't, you know, I don't don't pull art aside and say, no, art, I really, you know, I don't really know. I'm going to teach you the gospel here. For the most part, God gathers his people together and we know him together. So we don't evangelize one to another. There's a community that's born and they gather and they commit themselves to prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread and preaching and teaching of the hearing of the word. There's a communal commitment to one another. There's a communal commitment to one another. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing as I do once a month or I'm lucky if I get out, you know, I take summers off. That, that's not how the Christian community works. When they get saved, they commit themselves. This is my community. This is my, these are my people. We have lost that in North American Christianity. We have lost it. The greatest witness to the world is our love and our life together. It's not how well you can articulate Christianity on Twitter or Facebook. Great, use that. But you know what our greatest witness is? It's that we can get together and we can stand each other. World doesn't do a great job of that. But God's people can. That's the witness to the reality of the Spirit in us. Um, I just kind of want to close with an illustration about the printing press. Uh, because I think ever since this gathering together to, to grow in God's Word, the Christian community for generations has been a watershed for, for literacy, for education, for togetherness, for vocation. Expressly because of a desire to learn about God, uh, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1440, just before the Reformation took hold in Europe. And in fact, it was his technology which helped perpetuate uh, the truths recovered at the Reformation. It was designed to swiftly spread the knowledge of God. He was a Christian. He did this specifically for Bible reproduction. And in the way he speaks about it echoes the reality which was begun at Pentecost. He takes that same type of idea spoken of in Joel and applies it to his printing press. He does uh, admit and he notes that his printing press was adapted from the structure of a wine press originally. But check this out. Yes, it is a press, certainly, but a press from which shall flow in inexhaustible streams the most abundant and most marvelous liquor that has ever flowed to relieve the thirst of men. He's saying, I've I've repurposed this to create a new kind of thirst-quenching product. Through it, God will spread his word. A spring of pure truth shall flow from it. Like a new star, it shall scatter the darkness of ignorance and cause a light hitherto for unknown 
to shine among men. That's how he saw the printing press. It's just, a, it's just a further boost to the work that God began at Pentecost. And I want to close with a, one of my favorite New Testament passages. It's 2 Corinthians 3. It's, I, if I have a life verse, it's in here somewhere. Listen to first, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 8. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So when Moses got the Ten Commandments... He said that came in glory so much that Moses' face had to be covered because of the glory that shone from his face having received the Ten Commandments. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And then 12 to 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, meaning the ministry of the Ten Commandments as a means of righteousness. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts But when one turns to the Lord, think of this about Pentecost, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to uh, to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit, which means we all with unveiled face, we together are in this new covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we behold the glory of God. And yet it does not condemn you. Instead, the glory of this covenant, the glory of the Holy Spirit, instead of condemning you, it lifts you up and transforms you into his image. This is the grace of God in the new covenant. Instead of seeing God's glory and dying and being judged, we see God's glory and he lifts us upward because in Christ we are made righteous. This is the hope for the church. We are being transformed from glory to glory. Friends, this is the hope for you, whether you are discouraged, whether you are stuck in sin, whether you do not know how to move forward in your life. The promise of the new covenant is that you will be transformed from glory to glory into the image of God. Let me close in prayer and then we'll sing together.